well, uh, really good to be back with you all. If you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Luke chapter 8. That's where we're uh, going to be. Uh, we've been walking through the gospel according to Luke. So if you're visiting or just uh, popping in, it's your first time, or you're kind of uh, landing here and you haven't been coming for a while, here's what we uh, basically do. We just love to teach the Bible. Uh, we love to teach the scriptures. We love to read the scriptures and study the scriptures and herald the scriptures. And uh, because it talks really about um, one person, obviously God, the God of the universe who made all things, but also talks about um, his son who is God, Jesus. And Jesus is who uh, we are going to say probably more than any other name here because he is the hero of the universe, he's the hero of the scriptures, he's the hero of our lives, he's the hero of the saving kingdom that God has established. He is um, really the risen Christ that we love to worship and proclaim. We worship him by singing and studying and taking the Lord's Supper and fellowship and prayer in and, and lots of different ways. But we want you to know that he's who we're about. So if you came in here just wondering uh, what this is, why we're gathered here, what the goal of this all is, is to know Jesus more, press into Jesus more, grow in grace with Jesus more, know more about his saving work, his holiness, his love, his gentleness, his, his character, all so that we might be made more full, okay, and live in more joy here and in the life to come. So uh, open your Bibles to Luke 8. That's where we're learning about this Jesus. We've been taking a lot of time to walk through this gospel uh, really slowly so we can just stare at and marvel at the awe, the wonder, the glory that is Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's been a really fun study. I hope you guys have been enjoying walking through this book. I know for me, um, obviously it's a special privilege because I get to study it in unique ways and maybe different ways. Uh, and so it's just been a real joy to walk through and, and see what God is doing in us. It's been so encouraging to see you guys being shaped by it and molded by it and, and convicted by it and walking in greater grace uh, because of it. So uh, it's just been beautiful. So, um, But here's, here's where we're at. We're in Luke chapter 8. We're going to finish Luke 8 this morning. And uh, if you remember last week, we were planning on doing kind of this whole uh, section where uh, Jesus is back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He runs into two characters. One is a synagogue ruler and one is a uh, young or a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years internally. We see how they're just polar opposites. One's esteemed, one's rejected. One is in the synagogue teaching. One's excommunicated from the synagogue. One is thought well of by everybody, and one is thought as lowly and outcast and disenfranchised. Don't want to touch her, don't want to be near. So we saw these polar opposite views of, of both of these people, and we were planning on getting through the whole story, but uh, because of circumstances, we only made it through verse 8 last week. So here's what we're going to do is just, just finish up with the synagogue ruler, Jairus, and his daughter, and then next week hit chapter 9 and continue to play and move at a pretty good pace so we can see and get through all that God might want to teach us in uh, Luke, in this great gospel. So here's what um, we've been praying as we've been walking through the gospel of Luke. It's that, that we would be transformed by what we see and what we hear. So as we study about the life and personal work of Jesus, it's not just you hearing a bunch of facts and learning about him and, oh wow, he looked like this, wow, he did this. Or man, We want you to be transformed by it, okay? So remember, that's Luke's goal for Theophilus. He goes, hey, this high Roman official, he goes, I don't just want you to know these life and teachings. I want you to be totally transformed by the life and teachings of Jesus. Because remember, no one gets out of hell or is rescued to heaven just because you know about Jesus. Okay, You can know everything in Luke about his life and teachings. You can know every miracle he did. You can know every person he raised from the dead. You can know every single person he healed, blind, lame, mute, deaf, dumb. You can do all of that. You can list out the places he traveled, where his home base was for mission, how many hours he hung on the cross, what happened when he hung on the cross, how he felt, the agony of it, how he rose, the victorious nature of it. And you can be lost, okay? So we don't want you to come in here and just hear a bunch of great stuff and learn all these great details and leave unchanged. If you're walking out of here every single week unchanged, something's wrong, okay? Because remember we say, we don't at the end of sermons say, hey, that's just awesome. We say, hey, God's spoken. 
Let's do something now. So if you're, not, if you're not doing anything, if you're week to week to week is not changing at all, well, there's some good heart work to be done. There's some good you know, in surgery that needs to happen maybe for your soul because otherwise you're just coming to show up. It's just a cute hobby for you, and that's just really lame. Okay, so let's, let's get in the Word. Let's go to Luke chapter 8, and, and we're going to see this morning that Jesus does what he's already done in this gospel. He's going to raise someone from the dead to life. Now, there's only three we know about. Remember the Gospel of John tells us at the end that, hey, there are lots of things that Jesus did. Too many to count. The books can't even contain it all. And so there are three we know. Lazarus, back in Luke 7, we covered that. The widow's son, remember, they, they interrupted that funeral procession. And Jesus touches the, the stretcher the boys on and, and raised them to life. And here's the other one, which is Jairus' daughter. Now, here's why this is important. There's a lot of things that are evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That he is the Son of God. There, there's lots of things he does, but one of the primary ones is his authority over death. Okay, that's one of, the, one of the main ways, not just through his own resurrection, right? His own victorious nature over death, but the way that he actually raises people from the dead. And so Luke is going to show us this in this gospel. Now, remember, we're looking at this scene where Jesus' interactions are with these two people, the synagogue ruler and this woman who's been bleeding. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get some respite. He was just mobbed, crowded in, didn't want to deal with it, goes on the other side, heals the demon-possessed man. We heard from uh, Michael McKinney a few weeks ago, and he makes him a great missionary. He goes telling everybody about the work of Jesus, and then they kind of kick him out of town, don't want him anymore, so he comes back over, and the crowds are waiting. And remember, the crowds are waiting because he's the hero of the day he's banishing illness i told you if jesus came in and somehow came into you know human space today the way that he did back in the first century and he invades our walk he comes to bergen county and banishes illness whether you have a cut or cancer you're lining up to see him right like you want to be healed you want him to touch you you want him to do those things so it's a fanfare event so as he's crossing the sea coming over to the other side there are people anxiously waiting for him to show up and one man in particular can't wait for Jesus Jairus because he's had this girl this precious girl who's 12 she's at marrying age at the time of Israel you could be 12 to get married that seems so insane today so right I mean 12 having kids can't even imagine I mean Jackson maybe 40 when he starts you know getting married having kids so oh is that Okay, so here, here's, here's, here's what happens. This is precious for them. This is sensitive for them. The, the family members, Jairus and his wife, what they're feeling in this moment, this, their little girl is going to be lost. She's not going to have a family. They're not going to walk in grace with her, and he's waiting for Jesus. And Jesus comes and basically docks the boat, and let's pick it up in verse 40, just a few verses that begin to recap last week so we can follow the scene. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. Of course, they were thrilled, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had only a daughter, an only daughter, about 12 years of age and she was dying. Okay, so remember, the crowd's waiting. Man, they can't wait for Jesus to come out. What else is he gonna do? Everybody's lined up with all their sicknesses, illnesses, diseases and this guy Jairus is so excited. He, he's anxious and he's excited because Jesus has come to the other side and he knows he wants to get to him. And here's what's interesting. This is so out of character for him. Talked a little bit about that last week. Remember, he's a synagogue ruler. So he is tied to the religious establishment. If you, don't, if you haven't been following it all, the religious establishment up to this point now has already plotted to kill Jesus. So listen, this is not a, a, something a synagogue ruler would do. They would not come and actually want to talk to Jesus or befriend Jesus or even want him to do something nice for him. 
Right? They wanted to outlaw him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get him out of the scene. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like why he came. And so this man is so at wit's end in grief that he just falls at the feet of Jesus, begging him to save his daughter. Now, we said briefly last week, when you realize your desperate need for Jesus, that's what happens. You don't care what family thinks. You don't care what people think or the public thinks or your neighbor thinks. You're going, I need him. I see what I need. He has a remedy for my needs, so I'm going to go to him. And so you have this man who's just desperate. I mean, you guys ever find yourself just a, just a, a season of desperation? And if you're a Christian, I know where you go. You go to him. You get your face on the floor, head in the Bible, and you start begging. I know that. We've, many of us have walked through that together. I've counseled with some of you where that, that's been happening, right? Praise God for his mercy in that way, that he's put you at wit's end in your grief to push you into him. And so this is what's happening. We're seeing this just very picture of this with Jairus, the synagogue ruler, which is totally out of characteristic. That's why man, I love those new conversions, those people that you're like, man, they're never going to trust Jesus. Then they do, right? It's a, that's what you're seeing. Well, it makes no sense that he would want to be at Jesus' feet other than him realizing and seeing who Jesus was and believing he had the ability and divine nature to heal. And so Jesus is likely teaching when Jairus comes to him, begging to go and see his daughter. A joyful time in this girl's life is now one of pain and suffering. And so here's what happens before we get into Jairus. So he, he agrees. He goes with him. We saw how profound it was that he cares for us, that he, he takes notice of our issues. And he, as, as he's walking, this guy's faith is really tested. Because there's an interruption. This woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who is an outcast, she's shamed by culture, shamed by religious law. She knows back to Leviticus 15, she can't touch her husband, touch her family, touch people. She can't be near anyone. She can't go worship in the synagogue because she's considered unclean. She walks up to Jesus and she says to herself over and over and over, you read the other gospel accounts, if I could just touch his robe, if I could just touch his robe, if I could just cling to his robe. We know that we saw in Numbers 15, they were tassels on the bottoms and so the woman reaches out and grabs a hold of the tassel and she is immediately healed. New organ system, blood is gone. Amazing, profound miracle that we saw. Right, And so as she's, as she's healed, we see that Jesus actually felt it go out of him. We talked about how profound that is, that the God of the universe feels. Man, that, that every expression of his power, when he saves you, when he comforts you, when he loves you, when he forgives you, he feels that. God is not detached. He's not a cosmic divine force that has really no essence to it, just kind of watches things happen. He's actively involved in your life. Amazing. So we're seeing now that not just how the created people feel and respond, we're seeing what the creator does and how he feels. Luke's opening the floor to some beautiful, beautiful things. And then Jesus calls her daughter, showing that she had saving faith. She realized she needed forgiveness of sin and not just cure for her physical illness. So we're going to pick back up because this whole time that all this is happening, Jairus is there waiting. You imagine being Jairus? Biting your fingernails, like looking at me, seriously, gosh, just heal her. I mean, why is she grabbing a rope? Come on. I mean, you would just, you would just, come on, we're, you're not holy. Come on. I mean, you'd be so self-centered, right? I mean, we all would, man. Get, get going. Who cares about this woman? I mean, she's unclean anyways. Get to my house. Lack of grace, lack of compassion. We all know we'd respond that way, especially in urgency. In urgency, we don't care who's in our way. It's like the Garden State Parkway. Just get out of my way, right? I'm going to, I got place to be, things to do, and you just, First thing I noticed in New Jersey, you guys sin so much on the Garden State Parkway. So here, 
Here is, I do too, but not as much. So here, here is, just speaking truth. Okay, so verse 49, let's jump into verse 49. Here is, during all of this, all this has been delayed, here is what Jairus, here's what was happening with Jairus. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, that's Jesus. Someone from the ruler's house, from Jairus' house, came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Okay, so while Jesus is still speaking, well, maybe he's still speaking to this woman, showing compassion, showing gentleness, showing comfort. Someone comes running from the house. Finally, finally makes it up to the house. And you know Jairus, when he sees this guy running towards him, knows it's not good news. And he basically gives the dad his greatest fear. Just don't bother. She's dead. She didn't make it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what he's feeling? Someone we don't know who, but someone who was obviously at the house. He's already anxious to get to see his daughter. This woman's interrupted the journey. He's selfishly wanting one thing, Jesus and his daughter healed. And the father's worst fear comes to life. Someone who'd been back at the house finds him. And so as Jesus is giving his attention to the lowliest person in the crowd, the one with the most esteem has lost his daughter as this woman appears to be healed. Now at this point, Jairus says something interesting. It's not on the screen. Matthew 9 says he actually looks at Jesus and says, hey, I know my daughter's dead, but come put your hands on him. I know that she'll live. Amazing, right? There's this like fear mixed with faith going on. You guys ever experienced that? Right, where it's like you believe God, but there's still a lot of fear on the, on the fringe, right? Like I know you can do this, but this is still like, it's not like I can just erase anxiety or erase fear. And it's awesome, we're seeing this in Jairus. In the midst of his just fear, he's got some sort of faith that, that's still believing that Jesus will do it. And that's what we're gonna see here. And know that this is amazing faith in this man that he can say in Matthew 9, no, I know she's dead, but I know if Jesus goes and touches him, she can live. It's incredible. I mean, he knew all the Old Testament prophecies. He was a Jew. He, he knew all of these things. So he knew something about Jesus, that Jesus really was the messianic God of the universe. He knew he was the Savior of all things. He, he had some reason to know and understand that. And verse 50, we pick up and on Jesus, but on Jesus hearing this, I think it's hearing both of those things. On Jesus hearing this, hearing from the, the friend that, hey, she's dead, don't bother, and hearing from Jairus say, hey, I know she's dead, lay your hands on him, he'll be healed. Jesus hearing this answered him said, do not fear, only believe and she will be made well. So Jesus looks at Jairus and says, and how you actually read this, he's not saying, if you have faith, she'll be okay. He's reaffirming Jairus' faith. It basically reads, hey, keep on believing. Yeah, she's I promise she's going to be made well. Don't worry. Just that faith that was sustaining you, just, just keep having faith. Don't be afraid. Nothing's changed. I'm still en route to your house. There's still a promise of a resurrection. This is all going to come to fruition. It's comfort to Jairus. He's assuring Jairus. Verse 51, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. 
Now, we don't know how much time passed, okay, before this funeral started. But if you remember back to Luke chapter 7, first century Jewish funerals started right away. Okay, and here's what they would do. They would hire wailers, people to cry and mourn and weep. They would get civil players to come in and play things that just sounded sad and mournful. You would get you know, people to come in and play flutes. Matthew actually says that Jesus saw the flute players. So, so you've got the funeral already getting ready. They didn't cover bodies. They didn't put stuff on it. They laid it right down and got it out of the house and wanted to get it somewhere where they could bury it. So the funeral is already starting to get underway when Jesus gets there. And it's just insanity. There's a lot of commotion. Listen, first century Jewish funerals are not like funerals today. Okay, ours are quiet, respectful, reserved. Theirs were loud and rambunctious. Okay, you walked around. Everyone in town heard it. Okay, everybody was loud, screaming, howling, on their knees, fainting, flopping. It was just insanity. They wanted everyone in the town to come out and follow them as they marched through town on the way to the funeral place, right? We learned that in Luke 7 with the widow's son. That's what this scene looks like. So Jesus shows up to a house that's just full of commotion. People are weeping. People are wailing. And in amazing understanding this, Jesus doesn't want a huge mob to be brought into that. Why is he going to bring the crowd of hundreds that are following him into this already just crazy, rambunctious thing? So he tells everybody to stop. He tells Peter, James, and John, you guys come with me. And hey, Jairus and, and mom and dad, you guys come with me too. So he, he all of a sudden only lets a few in with him. And he walks into this chaotic, crazy, flute playing, cymbal clanging, weeping, howling place. And he goes, hey, stop crying. Stop weeping. How insensitive. Right? I mean, at first glance, if you were there, wouldn't you be like, for real? Who are you? Right? I mean, unless they knew who Jesus was, I mean, really, you're going to tell me to stop crying? This is a sad day. How dare you tell me to stop doing this and stop mourning and stop lamenting? And it's amazing. Jesus, as he walks into this chaotic event, doesn't just say stop weeping. He says something that would seem so offensive and insensitive. She's not dead. She's sleeping. If you're there, you know she's dead. You know there's no pulse. You know there's no heartbeat. And here Jesus walks in and says, hey, it's, it's okay. She's just sleeping. Well, one, amazing. What's Jesus doing right there? He's totally redefining death for us. I mean, this is amazing. If you read the Old Testament, New Testament, I mean, what's the language of those who are dead? They've fallen asleep. You read places about the, the future resurrection. What happens? Those who are asleep and those who are alive will be raised. So all of a sudden we learn that death is not permanent, that death is but a period of sleep where all will one day wake up and there will be a final resurrection, right? So he's kind of alluding to both, but here you have him saying, hey, she's just asleep. Now we know she was dead and we know Jesus very well could have meant, well, yes, she's dead in, the, in my category, but we know there's no permanent death as something being cut off. We will ultimately die forever being tormented in hell apart from God or we'll be eternally raised to life with glory in him, right? Based upon whether we trust in Jesus or don't trust in Jesus. And so you have this amazing, amazing statement from Jesus where he says she's not dead but she is sleeping. And then what do they do naturally? They laugh at him. They think he's crazy. This is actually the same language when the people mock him on the cross, it's like just this like scornful laughter, like mocking him and laughing at him. Like, who are you? What an idiot. 
She's sleeping. There's just scorn in their voice and in their body language, and they laugh at Jesus. Probably some hostility in the laughter, some offensiveness in the laughter. But remember, Jesus came with a promise of a resurrection. He promised Jairus. Okay? That's where he's getting his hope. So once he's finished clearing the house, Matthew Mark actually say he walks in there and just tells everybody to get out. He just clears it out. Here's what he says in verse 54. He's now got his time. He's got the people there that he wants. But taking her by the hand, the girl, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one that this happened. So Jesus walks in, wherever she was, lying down. Here you see more of the character of God, gentle, compassionate, sincere, reaches down, grabs her hand. I love that he grabs her hand. Gentle Jesus, right? And he looks at her and he commands her. He says, arise. I mean, this is unparalleled authority. I mean, when he says, arise, I mean, immediately the spirit that had left her body is put back in her body. The life in her lungs happens. She starts breathing. She's sitting up. He doesn't do any part-time resurrection. She doesn't need physical therapy. She doesn't need rehabilitation. She is fully functioning, which is why I love it. He says something so weird. He's like, hey, can you get this girl something to eat? Well, everybody's like just thrilled and overwhelmed, can't believe she's alive. He's like, hey, this is not a hallucination. He's showing evidence that she is, in fact, raised from the dead. She needs to eat. It's physical. It's real. She's a fully functioning young girl again. Give her some food. She's probably hungry. Amazing what what we're seeing here, and amazing. This is the same authority that casts demons out, that stops the storm, that enables creation to come out of nothing. This is the God-made man in human flesh who tells someone who is dead to get up and rise. And we see Jesus with his full God-given authority look at this little girl and say, arise, and she awakes immediately. Amazing. And she comes back to full, mature health. Now, you know, there, there are so many times we wonder, man, this really happened? This really happened? Amazing. If you actually read first century history and a lot of writers at that time, there's this guy, Quadratus of Athens. He's an amazing guy. He writes the emperor less than 100 years, okay? He actually tells the Roman emperor, Hadrian, I think his name is, that this actually in and fact happened, that Jesus rose people from the dead, did lots of healings, and they actually lived past Jesus, and we actually have talked to him and seen him. Amazing. This is like ancient historical fact that Jesus actually saw the dead and rose them back to life and people talked to him. People walked with him. They actually outlived other people. Imagine this girl. She might have been one of them. She's 12 when she's risen back from the dead. Jesus dies, what, a year later? Then she goes on and confesses and professes and tells people just an amazing, amazing thing. And I love it. Jesus then gives an interesting clause here at the end. As everyone's amazed at what happened, he tells them to not tell anyone. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if Jackson is 12 and about to die and Jesus shows up at my house and raises Jackson back from the dead, what's the first thing I'm going to want to do? Post it on Facebook. That's right. Twitter it. 
I mean, I'm, I'm putting posters up. I'm doing it all, right? I don't, look, I mean, that's, that's just a no-brainer. I'm making the next movie. Hollywood's calling me. I'm writing the book. I mean, I, it's just incredible the things that you would want to do. I mean, how weird for the guy who did it to then look at you and give you some sort of like condition like that. It would seem so seemingly odd. Now listen, we can speculate a lot of the reasons why. I don't think really we can know for sure because other times he says this type of statement, but he means something different. Okay, he's talking about judgment on people. He's talking about just seeing the works of the Spirit. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. Because, listen, all these people saw it. So what's the point in just concealing the truth? They're going to see her tomorrow walking down the neighborhood, and people are going to be like, yeah, she was dead, now she's alive. Everyone's going to talk about it. So it's not about concealing or stopping people from knowing that it happened. We know that can't be the case. We, we don't think that it's even keeping a secret. Matthew will actually say, hey, this news of her spread everywhere. Everybody found out about it. One commentator I agree with, I think, and he, I think he, I agree with his synopsis of it all because it makes sense to me. It might not make sense to you, but Jesus is basically saying, the whole crowd's out of the house. Why don't you guys just not feel like you have to rush out there and tell everybody? Just enjoy your family. Enjoy time. Enjoy being with each other. Enjoy the fact that your daughter was just raised back from the dead. Don't feel like you got to run out of this house and go tell everybody. Listen, news is already spreading out there. It's already getting on. I don't know, maybe even Jesus sat and talked more about his future work on the cross. Maybe Jesus shared about the gospel forgiveness of sins with them. I don't know what happened there, but Jesus obviously took some time. He's saying, man, just, just revel in the moment. I mean, don't we need to hear that a lot? When God is profoundly kind to us in significant places and times in our life we just want to move on even honestly just share about it and it, it might be right in motive then after we share we just move on instead of basking in the, the wonder of the miracle about what God did I mean has God moved lately in your life where you just need to stop and shut your mouth and just enjoy it just wow, God you're so kind and so unaware of it I haven't even seen it I haven't even been enjoying it Evidences of grace are everywhere in my life. And Jesus, I just see this comfort of Jesus. I see this calmness of Jesus. I see him just encouraging them to enjoy the moment. Hey, the shenanigans are out of your house. Don't go back into them. I kept the crowd outside. You don't want them all getting on you now and asking you for the you know, Powerball number. You know what I mean? Like It's the same type of thing. Hey, just stay here. Stay in the house. Relax. I'm just going to close with three thoughts. Not a lot today, I just more reflective. I want to just, not, not on the screen, just three thoughts. One is, um, understand, Jesus promised Jairus a future resurrection. And that promise of a future resurrection is not just for Jairus, but every single person sitting in this room. Right? It's, 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 it's a future resurrection where Jesus will come and say to all people in all places, arise. And look at John 5 real quick. That will be on the screen. John 5, 25. I think Jesus is foreshadowing his future power over death and how things will ultimately end. Anytime he raises someone back from the dead, John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority, him, Jesus, to execute judgment 
because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. For those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he goes, hey, listen, I know you're marveling at these like temporary resurrections, okay? You're seeing this little guy, this guy on the stretcher, the widow's son, you're seeing Lazarus, you're seeing you know, this little girl raised from the dead. Hey, don't marvel at this, man. These things are temporary. They're but a taste of the future resurrection that'll happen where everybody who's alive and everybody who is asleep in the grave, Jesus is going to come and say, hey, arise, just like he did to this little girl and all people in all places under every tombstone living in every place are going to arise at his name. They're all going to come forth at his full authority of power, speaking it out, and some will be raised to be judged eternally in hell, and some will be raised to be judged eternally into eternal life. Now, those who love Jesus, walk with Jesus, enjoy Jesus, submit to Jesus, trust in his death, resurrection, man, that's, that's good news in that resurrection. That's going to be eternal life. That's going to be time with God. There's going to be no shedding of tears. Everything's going to be wiped from their eyes. They will never taste death again. But those who do not love Jesus, do not want Jesus, do not proclaim Jesus as Lord, as they are risen from the dead the second time, they'll be actually sentenced to an eternal death where they will taste death forever and ever and ever and ever. So, so, so this, brothers and sisters, this resurrection, this, this will happen to every, every one of us. And listen, if, if we think that death is just a time where it is permanent and you end, understand the biblical understanding of death is just sleeping until you awaken again at the final resurrection, either to eternal life or eternal torment. I mean, serious. Serious news. And it's amazing because in that, in that moment, Jesus judges us, right? He's given the authority to execute judgment. I'm not going to judge you. Church ain't going to judge you. Family's not going to judge you. Jesus is going to judge you. Jesus is the judge, and Jesus is bringing his kingdom. This is a foreshadowing that his kingdom will come, and he will be the kingdom ruler, and he will be the one who raises the resurrection of the life and resurrection of the dead. I think that's the, the first thing we see, second for those of us who have and will have the great joy of grieving with others when they see people pass and fall asleep in this life, they have a Jesus who tasted the full sting of death, who understand what it's like to actually fall asleep and be risen again. That This God is not detached. He's not indifferent. He's not not wanting to get involved in feelings of suffering and death. No, he is fully, wholly, completely understanding of what that's like, and he's walked in it. So those of you who have had to bury loved ones, man, you've got a high priest who knows what that's like. Listen, I mean, anytime we walk through any type of pain, isn't the one thing you want for someone just to understand Everybody gives you their thoughts. Oh, that must be so bad. That must be so hard. But unless you talk to someone who's actually lived it, then there's just unbelievable comfort. Right? I mean, people aren't trying to be insensitive, but that, that's the reality. So here, Jesus is saying, no matter what suffering you hit, no matter what death you face, you've got a high priest. It's not like any human being. He can fully identify to the holistic extent. 
and his father was present at the death of his son. So those of you who have lost a young child or someone who's in your family or someone who you love, the father has felt that. He watched his own son die. He can identify with you in those moments. How beautiful, how profound, how comforting that if we are in Christ, we have access to this God who is intimately involved and actually feels, remember from last week, every expression of power he feels. I gotta be honest, the last couple weeks with Chris and I and all we've been walking through, knowing that God sits on the couch and feels it is tremendous. No one else could come in our house and say anything that's gonna compare to knowing that. Nobody, right? So this is profoundly beautiful that we're seeing all of this imagery in the future and in the life to come and in what we have now. And then, then lastly, just the last one I have is for the Christian. Um, the promise of this resurrection that Jesus will say arise to all people means that you no longer have to fear death at all. Death now that once was something to be feared now becomes your friend. Because you know it's just a temporary time of sleep before you awake with Jesus. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He's showing us that Jesus' resurrection and him resurrecting others means you don't have to fear not just this death here, but the second death, right? 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've always loved that Paul is like just mocking death here. And he's going to be death that's your enemy, death that's unnatural, death that's not wanted, death that's pushed back. Hey, listen, there's someone who took the sting of death, right? That is our rebellion, that is our wanting to be God, that is everything that we have done externally and inwardly, original sin through who we are by our very nature and the external actions of sin. All of that is the sting of death, right? That's what he says. He goes, hey, that, that sting is removed, right? Because someone came and took that sting for you and conquered death so you don't have to fear it anymore. I mean, I mean that's like, you know, bumblebees have a stinger, right? I'm terrified of bees. I don't know if you're afraid of bees, but, but bees are, are afraid with a stinger. I mean, you pluck that sucker out, oh, cute little bee. I can take it home as a pet, right? I mean, just, that, that's the idea, right? There's, there's no more fear in the sting. There's, there's no more fear of death. I mean, when you remove the sting of it, man, what matters? I mean, it's not, there's nothing to fear in it anymore. We know we're going to be but asleep and awaken again to eternal resurrection in glory. That means our temporary resurrection here would never compare to our future resurrection one day in glory. The question is, how does this shape our life? This has been a very, very challenging question for me and our family. How does knowing there is a future resurrection that Jesus will say one day arise, how does that affect the day-to-day? Knowing that. Because I've just been thinking about this a lot, and, I, and it's, it's like, it's like if, you, if you watch the news and you see something on the news that is um, urgent, right? I mean, they, they tell you about an illness, and they tell you that, man, that thing is hard-charging 95% of people that have it. Man, they get it. They're going to die probably. It's not good news. Here's the medications and whatever. And you, you look at that, you see it, and then you just flip the channel and keep moving. So you know all the facts about it, right? You know all the facts about the type of cancer, the type of illness. You know how to avoid it and what the causes are. And then you just, you move on. But you're sitting in your sofa. And they're talking about what you have. 
and they tell you, 95% of people pass, here's what you need to do, here's the verifications, here's the medications, here's what you need to look out for, all of a sudden what happens? Those facts are not just facts where you change a channel. Those facts are things that begin to reorient all of you, right? I mean, your whole life begins to change. So, so, so brothers and sisters, here's what I'm, I'm getting at. Number one, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I mean, how does the reality, it's been laid before you, shared with you, graciously just, just laid out on a platter that there is a future resurrection. You can choose to ignore it. Choose to, ah, I'm not really sure what, it, what, what that means or if that's true. You could dig deeper. You could search it out. You could ask God to reveal himself. You could talk to other people. You could come talk to me. We could have discussions about it. But ultimately, if that's true, what does that mean for you? That Jesus says, repent of your sin, come to Christ. He will forgive you in love. He died for you in love. He died for your sin. He took the sting of death and rose himself back from the grave so he could rise you again into eternal glory with himself. You've got the very one who conquered death. You don't have to fear death anymore. We need Jesus. For those of us that are Christians in the room, I mean, how does the future resurrection affect your personal holiness day to day? I mean, think about that, right? I mean, next time you are just tempted to either, I don't know, lust and kind of emotionally get involved with somebody else at work, or you're tempted to look at something on the computer screen, you're tempted to embezzle something here, cheat on your taxes, it doesn't matter. Or, or even in marriage, I mean, you're just tempted to respond a certain way, knowing that tomorrow, next week, next month, or a year from now, this is going to happen. That I'm going to stand before Jesus himself. I mean, how does that affect your decisions? How does it affect the family life that happens in your home? Man, are, are, we, are we aware that, man, there's a future resurrection, so, so all these things, how we orient our time and our neighbors and our evangelism, our time with the, the faith family, and we build ourselves up in the faces in the Bible and understanding more of who God is, I mean, how does that change? How is that shaped? Or do you just flip the channel? And see, see that's, that's the challenge. Every Sunday morning, we can come in and gather and leave and just change the channel. Or you could leave and realize that this is life and death we're talking about, that there are serious things at hand and not respond like Ezekiel 33 and say, oh man, that was really good. I'm gonna, hey, where are we going to lunch? And I realize we got to go eat, so we're going to ask where we're going to lunch. But even amidst all that, you don't forget, you let it linger, and you talk about it. I mean, it's so weird for Chris and I because we have to go home and talk about what I said. Like, that's just weird. Well, the guy, you know, that guy today that was preaching, you know, I'm like, I know, I know, right? And then we dialogue, we, we talk, and we wrestle, and we walk, and how does this shape you? How does this reality of a future resurrection change? I, I can't answer that for you. I mean, I've got ideas and stuff. I don't want to pigeonhole you in a corner. I want the implications of this to bear weight on your soul and for you to pray about it and think about it and walk in it in the ways that God might be asking you uniquely in your season of life, in your vocation, in your family to be more keenly aware of this and love the renown and glory of Jesus because of it. Let's ask him to do that. Let's ask him to help us to show us what that means. God, thank you that you're a God who cares for us. That you're a God who is concerned for us. You're a God who, who came, lived, and died. God, to rescue and ransom us to yourself. God, to make us aware of the resurrection. Make us aware of our future resurrection, God. Would you save those in this room who might not be on the path to being risen to eternal life, but to eternal death? God, would you be merciful to them? Would you open their eyes and ears to the good news of your saving work in Jesus? That you took the wrath of God towards them in their sin, that you paid the debt for them, that the sting of death has no power or authority anymore, that you bore it on the cross. 
and you rose again, validating that and offer your Holy Spirit and gift us that to walk in newness of life. As we take the Lord's Supper, help us to remember who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.